0: My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-one. If you guys enjoy this show and want to help me make it better, you can spread the word for it. You can go and write a review for it on iTunes, or you can simply go and make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is uh, Professor Chris Elia Smith. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's the director of the Center for Theoretical Neuroscience at University of Waterloo. And also the team leader behind Spawn, which is the brain simulation which uh, recently made headlines around the world. And, of course, the main reason why I drove all the way to Waterloo to have the pleasure of interviewing Chris. So uh, thanks for taking time to be with us today, Chris.
1: My pleasure. Nice to meet you, Nicola.
0: Fantastic. So let's just jump right in. Sure. So what is Spawn? Spawn?
1: Spawn is a uh, large-scale brain model, and it has about 2.5 million cells, individual neurons that are simulated in the model. And what makes it uh, special in the world of large-scale brain models is that it can perform a lot of different functions. So it's able to do things like memorize a list of numbers, um, and it can also uh, perform what are considered cognitive tasks, uh, which is fairly special for a spiking neural model. I think what also people find kind of uh, interesting about the model is that the only input that it gets are images, just like you'd see, uh, coming from a camera, and its output is the control of an arm, and it basically draws its answers, draws numbers uh, to give its responses.
0: So if you we were to feed this interview to the simulation after we're done here, what do you think the, the response would be?
1: Probably not much. It'd probably be just a bunch of noise. So one thing about Spawn is that uh, its world is quite limited. So it can't parse arbitrary images. It wouldn't recognize people. Uh, what it's an expert on, if you will, is numbers. So it can recognize the numbers from zero to nine. Uh, and they can be handwritten uh, or typed by a computer. Either one is fine. And there's a few other characters that it recognizes. Um, and it has an understanding of the concept numbers. So it knows that two comes after one and, you know, five is greater than four and so on. Um, but really, that's kind of the limit of its uh, semantic world. So the things that it knows about. So when you're asking it a question, you essentially need to pose it in the world of a series of digits. Uh, So you have to have some structure to the digits that it can then recognize and generate a response for. And it can also write the numbers from 0 to 9.
0: So uh, is that sort of a limitation uh, as a result of, of your technical limitations in terms of processing and simulating? Uh, The brain, or or is that the the goal from the outset to basically focus on uh, uh, recognizing of of numbers and performing all those relevant functions?
1: No. In fact, our goal really is the grandiose one of trying to build a brain, and so we wouldn't want to stop with numbers. Um, Indeed, the only reason we use numbers is because there are sort of nice standard databases of human handwritten digits that we can use in order to uh, basically show questions to the model. So it's kind of a naturalistic input insofar as people actually wrote these numbers. It's not just like clean typing. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, ultimately what we're trying to do is scale it up. And as you pointed out, I mean, the reason that we stick with such a sort of small space is because even to run the 2.5 million neurons that we're running, which is tiny, the the brain has about 80 billion neurons in it. But even to run those 2.5 million neurons, it takes a couple of hours for every second of time that we simulate. And so we would be waiting years and years if we tried to simulate something on the scale of the human cortex. But uh, I believe that the principles we're using to construct the model can, you know, go a lot further than they have. Whether they would get everything, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's something we have to look into.
0: So it seems that your simulation is a very heavily scaled down one. Absolutely. Uh, if, and, and would you uh, be able to tell us the exact ratio of scaling down? Because 2.5 million out of, what, 80 billion? Yeah. So that's like what four thousand times or something?
1: Some big ratio, yes. yes. Much much smaller. Um, so, um, yeah, right. I was just trying to calculate it in my head, but right. So it's say forty thousand times smaller. It's way smaller. Forty thousand. Okay. Right. It's tiny. But if, I mean, the thing that's uh, important for us is, I mean. Uh, Not necessarily how many neurons you've got, but that is ultimately relevant if you want to compute functions as complicated as what humans can do, or even uh, simpler animals. Mm -hmm. But it's trying to capture the relevant structures, right? So do we think that we've captured enough of the structure to account for basic critical features? Can it control information flow through its own mind? Mm -hmm. Can it recognize things in the world? Can it control an arm, which is, you know, simulated like a real physical arm? And can it infer patterns that are fairly difficult to see in some of its input? Can it memorize lists of information, so basically allow information to affect its performance in the future? Can it do learning? So can can it it get all of these things? Thoughts
0: or feelings? Um, So I would
1: probably be happy to say that it has thoughts. Right now, we haven't really focused on the sort of emotional responses of the model to anything. Uh, There are aspects of reinforcement learning, so it kind of gets reward and punished. Mm -hmm. But I would I think it's far too much of a stretch at the moment to say that it has feelings.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if it did, how would you ever know? You'd ask it. You'd ask it. Yep. There's no other way of recognizing that. There's no specific neurological or simulation pattern. Yes, That's...
1: of course. So you would, you would. Um, so I mean, you would ask it. Uh, so asking it can come in many different forms, and you wouldn't necessarily expect it to give you a verbal response. Um, but you could query it, right? So you would put it in situations that you might put an animal in and see if you have neurological patterns which are similar, see if, uh, you know, the kinds of responses of the system are similar to the kinds of responses you find in animals or humans in the same emotional circumstances, right? And then you would want to say that, you know, it's uh, processing information in the same way when animals exhibit feelings. There are theories of emotion that actually depend on you having a body. So that might be the kind of thing that you don't, do convincingly until you've embedded it into a robotic body. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's really sort of no constraints to taking the same simulations that we're building here in virtual worlds and putting them into robots.
0: <laughs> so uh, if, you are, if you were to query it, uh, wouldn't that in a way be like running a Turing test of a sort if you start talking about uh, emotions and feelings and so on, and provided that it sort, of, sort of gets those answers right? Wouldn't that be in a way like running a Turing test?
1: Well, actually, I think you're challenging my initial reply of saying, oh, you just ask it is exactly the right one because uh, you're actually going a lot beyond just asking it, right? You're looking inside to see if the structures that are responsible for the behavior are analogous to the structures you find in the human brain. And you know, one of the large limitations of the Turing test is precisely that you're just querying behavior, right? Mm-hmm. You're only saying, you know, does it respond sufficiently similarly that I can't tell the difference? Um, But I don't think that's, I think that actually, it might fail if we don't get the internal structure prop right. And so there's lots of ways that we can measure the internal structure. We can turn to things like fMRI, right? We can do all this single cell recording. All the things that we actually use to inform the spawn model um, are, you know, other ways in which you would want your creature to sort of match in order to be convinced that it's got whatever psychological property you're interested in, Mm -hmm. whether it's pain or understanding Mm -hmm. or what have you.
0: Let me ask you this though then. Uh, Do you not ever have some kinds of concerns or others about eventually the fact that you might be creating a brain in a vat?
1: Not yet. (laughs) So um, right now the... the... But
0: provided you're successful in the long run, as you said, your goal is to create an exact copy of the brain, if I get it right, or a full simulation of the brain right? And yeah. that would, you know, in essence be exactly the definition of a brain in a VAT.
1: Right. So, um, I mean, these are concerns that we have to keep in mind as we scale things up. And I think they become more pressing as you start to, you know, look at areas of the brain that we think are critical for emotion or... Uh, Functions. Or, yeah, self, self-awareness of some kind or what have you. Yeah. I mean, there, there aren't any identified areas which are, you know, specifically for these issues. But... Um, I mean, uh, ultimately, I suspect that you're going to have a difficult time actually doing this well if you do not put it in a body. Um, And so creating a brain in a vat really might just end in the thought experiment that it is, right? You might not have a successful, uh, adaptive, effective brain if you don't put it in a body, right? So um, robotics is definitely something that is uh, important for us. Uh, in trying to make sure that these models are sufficiently robust and sort of uh, animal-like
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: to explain the kinds of behavior that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if the brain in a vet per se is a, a big risk. Um, I think ultimately we might have to be careful about issues of you know being ethical to the models that we construct. Um, I think we're far enough away from that that as long as we keep it in the back of our mind, uh, it should become... Reasonably obvious to us when we have to start taking it more seriously.
0: Yeah, you can keep it in the back of your mind, uh, the back of your mind when you have about two point five million, you know, yep. uh, neurons. But what happens is that the more successful you become and, and the more sc- you're scaling up your efforts, the more to the front of your mind yeah, th- that absolutely. ethical issue and consideration has to come. And then, do you feel like you have to stop at some end, or or what, what's your attitude towards that? Imagine you're, like, a few steps short of <laughs> of the full brain simulation. Right. Then what? Because, let's say, you have, in theory, a reasonable chance of success, or what you believe is a reasonable chance of success. What happens when you turn it off, in the end, after the, the experiment is over? Uh,
1: there are many possible ways of understanding this. Uh, I mean, even before you worry about things like shutting it on and off, um, things like... You know, what kind of relationship do we think is the right one for it to have with people, right? Should it be a slave or a servant to whatever people happen to tell it, or should it have its Mm -hmm. own goals and should it have issues, you know, uh, self preservation? Should that be part of its uh, psychological makeup? I mean, at the moment, these questions are uh, so distant that we just don't know whether they're the kinds of things we could ever put into a simulation of this kind or if there's going to be some fundamental barrier that, makes it sort of not worth considering the question at this point in time. Um,
0: Do you program for those, or do you think of programming for those? No,
1: no, at the moment we don't. Uh, I mean, I think one of the ways that we avoid, or like one of the reasons I'm not concerned about it that much at the moment is uh, most of our focus is really on fairly directly information processing kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. Um, Problems that, you know, everyone's trying to solve in robotics and vision um, and so on, in ways that it just doesn't seem like these things are at the point where they're making decisions which can have ethical consequences, or which can, you know, exhibit some kind of, um, you know, self-preservation, or right? like all the different kinds of things people often think are going to be necessary before you have anything like self-awareness uh, mm-hmm. to worry about. And really, that our focus is going to stay there for a while. I think as we get more into self-adaptation, letting the system. Uh, sort of, you know, go into the wild and begin to come up with its own strategies and be more self-directed in its development, then these issues are going to be more central. So in a way, it just seems a little bit premature. I mean, I could say things, but I would have essentially no confidence in uh, what I said as being either reasonable or not. That mm-hmm. so much depends on the details.
0: That's okay. I would ask you to speculate on a few points
1: here during our interview. <laughs> you might be disappointed. I'm not a big speculator.
0: <laughs> oh, you're not. Well, that's okay. That's <laughs> also we'll another out. interesting thing, by the way. Fair enough. Um, so, so perhaps that's a good point to sort of zoom out a little bit and, and look at a big picture and roll back the tape of time and ask you... Uh, how and why in the world did you ever get to be interested in, in creating a, a whole brain simulation? Um,
1: that's a difficult question. There was no sort of moment of epiphany where I decided this is what I needed to dedicate my life to. Um, rather, you know, I began my undergraduate career as an engineer, and I was fascinated at the time by neural networks, like lots of people were. When I looked into neural networks at the time, so this would have been in the like early 90s, Nothing sort of grabbed my attention. Nothing looked too exciting that was going on. Uh, And so I decided that what I was really interested in, the reason that neural networks interested me is because they were brain-like. And so I moved my, or sort of like redirected my interest more to understanding what a mind is and uh, sort of much more philosophical questions, and did a master's in philosophy, uh, in cognitive science in particular, and uh, went from there to a program called philosophy neuroscience and psychology, right? So something that's combined my interests, and essentially just followed a trajectory which let me think about the underlying parts and how they'd interact to give rise to simple and complex behaviors. Um, and when I was doing my PhD, I started to work with a physicist who had been doing computational neuroscience, mm-hmm. and uh, he was interested in, you know, trying to figure out what the principles were that governed neural computation, and so we worked for a while on that. And my, that was the, the result of that work was my first book called Neural Engineering, and um, you know, there it was really a, a question of just trying to figure out how could you get interesting and sophisticated dynamics out of something that was similar to the substrate that brains worked in. Um, and then, like, so that was in a way um, sort of devoid of the question about minds or what the brain actually did. It was just like, you know, if I knew what it did, how could I make a bunch of neurons do that thing?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then. So I pursued that line of work for quite a while and uh, ultimately turned to what my most recent project has been. Um, So I have this book coming out called How to Build a Brain. And so there I thought, you know, we had some good ideas about how you could take dynamics and put them in spiking neurons. But then what I wanted to ask is, well, what are the dynamics that are relevant for understanding how the brain works in mammals in particular? And so I started along the sort of course of work that has culminated in my new book and in Spawn. So Spawn is essentially a description of uh, the main model that we construct in that book. And um, I wasn't, I sort of didn't start w- out with the purpose of building a brain, but as I made my way through my philosophy degree and my engineering degree and uh, my previous work, it became clear that, you know, to get what I considered a satisfactory understanding of how brains worked, you'd have to build it at a fairly detailed level and understand how those details related to you know, high-level philosophical questions about representation or meaning or architecture of the mind and all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- it wasn't really one thing that made me decide, oh, I'm going to build a brain. It was more just a general interest that I think a lot of people share in, you know, who are we? How do we work? Like, what is it that makes me have one thought versus another thought? Uh, and just pursuing that line of interest led to where I am at the moment. hmm
0: Now, uh, I want to ask you this because it's very interesting how you moved from engineering to philosophy and then with a little bit of psychology and all that. So I I have so many questions on all of those. Uh, But you know, I have a very good friend of mine who is an engineer. Um, He actually does, um, uh, he works for a medical company, I think it's Philips, and he does support for the fMRI machines um, in most hospitals here in Ontario. So half jokingly, half seriously, every time we talk with him, he says that philosophers are basically or philosophy basically is bullshitting. And philosophers are therefore all bullshitters because you know, engineers create things that you can touch, see and feel. So they do quote real work, whereas philosophers are all bullshitters because they just build, you know, things in the sky that you can't ever see, feel or touch. Right. So, uh, not all philosophers. <laughs> not all philosophers. So, so do you ever experience any conflict between those two parts of you, you and your work? Or do you find them complementary, contradictory? Um, right. So
1: are all philosophers bullshitters? Um, whenever I hear stuff like that, I want to say, you know, all generalizations are false. <laughs> and uh, it's as true in philosophy as anywhere else, to the extent it could possibly be true. Because, I mean, you have different kinds of philosophy and different people take, you know, different uh, sort of criteria for what counts as a good answer or not a good answer. Um, the way that I use... So I, I'm not schizophrenic. I don't, like, become a philosopher and then an engineer. I, I really do see these things as a continuum. And in a way, this is sort of the natural state of uh, doing exploration of our world. If you look back, historically speaking, you know, all the great philosophers are also great scientists, great mathematicians, great engineers. Um, So the division is really an artificial one, right? Um, The thing that I find useful about what's typically called philosophy is that it helps uh, frame problems. It helps direct our attention to what seem like the most salient or least salient or least important part of what we're trying to explain. Mm -hmm. And I think that often the so personally, you know, as someone who wants detailed explanations, I think the kinds of explanations that philosophy stop at are often unsatisfactory, right? And, and I presume this is what your friend was referring to when he said they don't build anything. But I think that, um, you know, by asking the kinds of questions philosophers do and writing in the sort of analytic way that they do, they help clarify the concepts we're employing, they help set up contrasts so you understand, you know, when one thing is different from another or not. Or, uh, and, you That kind of thing is absolutely critical for building a system as complex as a brain because we have to rely on those high-level concepts to give ourselves any epistemic grasp of what we're doing. We can't really understand the simulation by understanding how neuron 1 affects neuron Mm -hmm. 563,000. So you know, building a conceptual structure that's consistent, uh, has an understandable relationship to other ways that people talk or think in any of the sciences, any of the behavioral sciences, about how the brain functions. um, You know, having a grasp of that, I think, is uh, something that philosophy has been really important for for me. Um, On the engineering side, the particular kind of engineering I'm doing, uh, like the department I'm in here is called systems design engineering, and this is actually a very high-level view kind of engineering. It's sort of a way of thinking of, you know, all systems regardless of there being chemical systems or industrial systems or physical systems, as being, you know, lots of parts which have boundaries at different places. They have complex interactions. And we can come up with quantitative tools for describing those and use, you know, the tools of signal processing and so on to analyze them as well as synthesize them. Um, so having that very abstract kind of engineering in mind and then having a, but, you know, practical, sort of joined to physical implementation a lot of the time, And then having a more theoretical kind of background, I think, helps me have a reasonably good, coherent, unified package Mm -hmm. that allows us to direct our research in a way that is fruitful and then demonstrably fruitful. Like, so, you know, your engineering friend, he wants to see the goods. (laughs) And uh, that's like pretty much every scientist, right? Show us, right? We won't believe you unless you can do something that somebody else can't. Um, And, of course, I don't think I'd be able to do that if I didn't have my engineering background, right? Mm-hmm. So ultimately to me, I mean these things are just uh yeah they're they're enormously complementary to one another, and given the multidisciplinarity of something like brain studies, behavioral sciences, um being broad is is, is
0: only a benefit is... yeah. <laughs> yeah so you mentioned that philosophy is very good at helping you kind of frame the questions and the issues that you're going after, so right. What is the drive? The, the driving question that you're working on is it uh, the title of your book, How to Create a Mind?
1: How to build a brain?
0: How to breathe? How to <laughs> build a brain? Yes. Yeah,
1: that's Kurtzweil's book. That other one.
0: Um, <laughs>
1: Mine's more specific. Uh, but uh, I guess I mean, yeah, I, I find it difficult to formulate it as one question. But I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable way. Um, I think that now we're moving to more specific aspects of that question. Uh, that's obviously a very big and general question. And you know there are when we've uh, been building models like spun, I look at the model and I there's things that I don't think are as explain, explained as well as I'd like them to be. And so you know we're now moving more on to issues of adaptation and learning and self-direction and you know sort of uh, things that are I don't know, a kind of question which aren't really covered by the book. But they really are part of the same question. They're still about how to build a brain, Mm -hmm. ultimately. So
0: tell us a little more about your book then. Um,
1: Sure. I mean, uh, so this is a book with Oxford University Press. It's coming out uh, in a couple months. I think it's on Amazon for pre-order right now. But uh, the book starts out uh, framing just the kind of perspectives that people have taken on understanding what brains are, or minds, I use the terms interchangeably. So, you know, I briefly recount the history which um, describes connectionist approaches, symbolic approaches, sort of classic AI kinds of approaches, uh, as well as more recent dynamic systems theory approaches, all of these ways, sort of different philosophical views, really, on how to approach our understanding of the mind. And then what I try to point out is that Essentially, none of these have worked, and all of them have strengths, and the strengths are ultimately complementary, and there really shouldn't be intention. And so I propose a new architecture, which I call the semantic pointer architecture, and that's where the name Spawn comes from. So it's semantic pointer architecture, unified network. Um, And in describing this architecture, I try to show how, you know, if we go to the biological basis of cognition, so all these other approaches really start at a, a level much higher than biology, understanding how neurons work. But if we go right down to the biological level, then, um, you know, we can discover using methods that I, we talked about in our previous book. We can discover kinds of neural representations which ultimately unify all these different ways of approaching uh, how the mind works. So I introduce this notion of a semantic pointer, and I show how the semantic pointer is a neural representation. But it's a neural representation that can be used in some cases uh, for things like statistical inference and modeling statistics, which is what connectionism was good at. It can be used uh, to bind uh, to other representations that are similar and encode sentence-like structures. So this is something that classical approaches are good at. Um, And then it can also be used in the context of a control system, which lets you capture dynamics, lets you capture sort of uh, motor semantics, all these sorts of ideas that uh, dynamical systems theorists have often worried about. And so I really tried to make the argument that you know, if we adopt this perspective, which really starts at the biology and then looks at how each of these different strengths can be built out of the biological underpinnings, we end up with a new architecture, which is ultimately, I argue, people might not believe me, um, sort of a better, more coherent way of understanding how the mind works. Mm-hmm. And I do this in a way where, you know, at the end of every chapter, there's a tutorial so people can go and actually build these things and understand, you know, the engineer in me has to show up there somewhere. I right? yeah. actually build these things and understand yeah. how they work. And then in chapter seven, I take all the parts that I built up to that point and put them together, and that's the concept, that's the spawn model, to show that it's not just a bunch of parts, right? Mm -hmm. They really can work in concert, and when they do, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You start seeing kinds of behavior that now begin to look much more like what you find in uh, animals than what you do if you just look at one part of the system. Mm
0: -hmm. So you're laying out your whole vision, uh, of your, the, the approach that you believe would be the most fruitful towards that goal. Right. But what would be that proof of concept that would concur or deny the viability of your uh, approach?
1: Right. So I th- I believe that we have provided the proof of concept insofar as... Th- as the simulation. As the one. spawn model. Yes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in response to your engineering friend, who's now haunting the conversation... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, if he wants to know why I think all my philosophical musings about semantic pointers and all that other stuff, why I think that really matters, I would point him towards this model. And I would say, here's the model. And we can now go compare it to behavioral data and show that it has, you know, the same, makes the same errors that people do in working memory tasks. Uh, we can compare it to individual spike trains coming out of rodents performing uh, the same kind of reinforcement learning task, and we see that you know a lot of this same kinds of statistical properties show up there, and we can compare it over and over and over at many levels. We can compare behavioral, we can compare you know do fMRI uh, predictions, we can do ERP, like whatever kind of data that you want to get out of a real brain, we should be able to get out of our brain and make comparisons. And to the extent those things match, you know, should convince us that we have something like the right mechanisms inside that model. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. What are the hardware requirements to run such a simulation? By the way, so
1: we ran this on sort of generic supercomputers, uh, Beowulf clusters, and so on, um, and so like it's you know it can run on anything that can run software. It tends to be slow. Uh, we've been doing recent work to port it all over to GPUs, and so our software, uh, it's like the general environment that we have now runs on GPUs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we haven't put spawn on that yet, so we don't know. Uh, If how much we're going to be able to speed it up or if it will be the same as what the sort of non-specialized hardware was. But actually, I think more excitingly, really, uh, we're working with a couple of groups that are developing chips and uh, hardware architectures, which are specifically for simulating spiking neurons Mm -hmm. and millions and billions of spiking neurons in real time. And the reason that's exciting is not only because it solves a lot of our computational problems, But because then we get to make it interactive, right? We get to make it the kind of thing that we think should be interacting in the world in the same way that an animal with a similar kind of brain should be interacting. And that will raise a host of new challenges. This is sort of coming back to the the brain in a vat kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of things we just would never think of if we kept our brain in a vat that we will, you know, get a deeper appreciation of once we start embodying these models more. We've actually built some models that control robots and drive around and so on. Mm -hmm. But... Not to the extent that, you know, they have the variety of behaviors that this spawn model has.
0: So the incoming input would not be only visual then, but it would come in other ways?
1: Uh, yeah, it would be visual, and definitely it would be tracking things like motors. So you'd be tracking your motor out- output. You'd have some sensory information, and then I mean you would put in whatever you wanted to. So if you wanted sound, you could put in sound. And,
0: and just so to, to clarify on the hardware end of things, I remember, I think... Watson was running on about uh, 2,000 cores. So do you have like, similar requirements, more or less? Um, so we don't have really requirements. If
1: you, we just have patience, right? So if you give me one core, I will wait a really long time. It, um, I think those, that two-hour quote comes from like an eight-core machine or might have been, might have been slightly more than that. Uh, but it wasn't a huge machine. What was special about it, was that we had a lot of memory. So we require on the order of 24 gigabytes of memory to load the model to run it. So, um, I mean, these That's are... Be- not that much. I was no, going to say these are becoming less interesting yeah. numbers as time goes on, as, I as computational to numbers... On
0: my desktop at home, for example. Right.
1: So you could probably run Spawn on your machine, and it would take a long time, though. So the, the processors were really very fast processors, too. So uh,
0: tell us again the ratio between the simulation and uh, then the conversion into actual real brain time. Uh, Two hours to simulate one
1: second of real brain time.
0: Oh, wow. That's okay. That's where the difference of processing power comes because Watson was spitting things in real time, actually, under time pressure constraints. Yes. You know, so, okay, I I understand now. Okay, so since now we've mentioned the machine several times, let me ask you this. What do you think of machines like Deep Blue that, you know, famously defeated Garry Kasparov and now Watson, who, or which, I don't know how to call him or or (laughs) annihilated basically his human opponents in jeopardy?
1: Um, They're impressive. I mean, uh, there's no doubt about it, right? That the behaviors that they exhibit in their specific domains are uh, very amazing. And they're clearly artificially intelligent. I don't think, you know, you basically have to change the definition of artificial intelligence if you don't think they count. Um, I also don't think they're brain-like. Uh, I think most everyone would agree with that, that uh, when Deep Blue is solving a problem, it's, you know, searching 200 million possible uh, board moves in serial. Uh, but humans just don't work that way, right? There's uh, other kinds of much more parallel processing that's going on that might be doing some, something sufficiently equivalent to let, it, to let humans solve a similar problem. Um, but it's just not working on the same basic principles. And the same goes for Watson, um, and I think that you know, even though our model is much simpler insofar as any of the functions it does are nowhere near as impressive as winning chess or answering arbitrary questions, I think that uh, one thing that our model does do that those machines don't is uh, exhibit a variety of behaviors. And so you know, Watson is great at answering trivia questions, but it can't recognize an arbitrary digit drawn on a board, right? Uh, and more importantly, it can't switch between those things. So something that people do effortlessly is, you know, read a book and then go play a video game and then admire some art and then carry on a conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're doing a lot of different things with the same brain. They're sort of, you know, instantaneously rewiring themselves or controlling the flow of information through themselves in such a way that they can do different tasks. And that's a problem that things like Deep Blue and Watson have completely sidestepped, right? So they, uh, they're specialized, right? And one of the exciting things or, you know, unique things about people and other animals is how unspecialized they are, how they can do all these different sorts of things with exactly the same hardware. Mm-hmm. And I think we are starting to get at that issue a little bit with the spawn model here, and one which is maybe a little bit underappreciated in AI in general.
0: Well, one of the reasons why we're here today is to bring more light so that to, to your project so that more people can appreciate the importance of it and hopefully support it in all kinds of ways. Yeah, very kind. Um, now, we also mentioned the difference between the title of your book and Ray Kurzweil's book. <laughs> yep. So um, he also has uh, his own theory of mind and his own proposed way to, to create one. Um, recently, he met, made headlines by being uh, hired by Google right. precisely for that purpose. Uh, so uh, what do you think of Ray Kurzweil's book on the same topic? Have you read it? And I have read large chunks of it.
1: Um, I mean, there's a lot in there that I sort of didn't feel the need to read because it's about biological detail of the brain. But uh, so, you know, I sort of read the chapters which seem most uh, descriptive of the theory. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that um, like past descriptions uh, that have called themselves theories of how the brain works, they are identifying particular classes of pattern recognizers which are impressive and which have been exploited in the past to great uh, fanfare and success, uh, I think that avoids a lot of the most difficult problems that are being solved by biological systems. Um, I think your engineering friend would be very disappointed because there are no models of how the brain works in that book. Uh, so I think it's much more sort of it, start, it stops a lot earlier than what uh, our work does, right? So. I provide a lot of theoretical background and description, but then we build spawn, right? So mm-hmm. we actually show that these principles can work, and you know, this is the kind of behavior that is going to come out of those. Whereas in sort of theories that say, you know, I've discovered a kind of pattern recognizer, which I think is an especially important one, and the brain is just going to be that a lot of times over, are missing a lot of the hard problems of how do you make a pattern recognizer become a pattern producer that's controlling a nonlinear dynamical arm? How do you make that pattern recognizer switch between, you know, completely different kinds of uh, information processing depending on what the input happens to be? Uh, how do you make that pattern recognizer be context sensitive in some circumstances and not in others, right? How do you sometimes learn and not learn other times? You don't always want to be constantly changing your pattern recognizer, right? Or it would become useless in situations that you would want to use it for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So all these sorts of very difficult control questions. Uh, how do you basically coordinate your 30,000 pattern recognizers in order to do the variety of tasks uh, in the right kinds of time frames and so on, those are questions that I think are enormously unanswered. And um, uh, not to get down on Google, but, you know, they, they have taken sort of a large data approach to these, to the problems of building machine intelligence. And we've learned a lot from that. And I think that, you know, big portions of what the brain does can be captured by its ability to process enormous amounts of data and extract patterns from it. But there are a lot more interest, or not more interesting, but other interesting questions which are avoided if you just sort of throw lots of data in an algorithm. And typically it comes down to all these sort of control questions, right? Mm-hmm. Coordination of lots of different recognizers, you know, context-sensitive selection of which sets of patterns you're going to be looking for, control of bodies, you know, determining what your next pattern that you're going to get is. So one thing about having a body is you can you know, explore your environment and be looking for particular information. Um, so, you know, those kinds of uh, features, which I think minimally show up in a simple model like Spawn, are largely absent from that kind of class of uh, approaches to AI. Mm-hmm.
0: Two other projects that uh, come to my mind, by the way, are the Henry Mackrum uh, Blue Brain Project. hmm and uh, I think uh, IBM Synapse uh, project, which is uh, led by Tchemet Ramothra. Right. Um, would you uh, mind to say a few words about those projects and perhaps how they're similar or different from what you're doing? Yeah, so um,
1: essentially you've identified, you know, the major approaches to doing brain-like or brain-related simulations, right? So there's the large data approach, which is kind of focused on function. You know, they want to make... Uh, They want to find patterns which they can use in the future to do something interesting, like classify a new pattern. Um, And then there are other approaches which focus on the the building blocks, right? So the people worried about function, they don't care if their system works like the brain or not. They just want to win chess. Um, On the other side, you have people who really care, right? So Markham's a biologist, really cares about the biological details of the simulation. And so his, uh, you know, very impressive simulation has about a million neurons in it. And the, the neurons are highly detailed. They've got, you know, tens of equations or more per cell to simulate the activity of those cells. Um, and the parameters are taken from lots of biological experiments and so on. And then they're composed in a column where the statistics of connectivity mirror the statistics of connectivity you find in the, in the real brain and so on. I mean, but... And so you can, you can simulate these and you get, you know, patterns of activity that you might want to believe are like the patterns of activity in a real brain... <laughs> But in a way you don't know because you don't know what the input to that system should be, and so you don't know how to evaluate its output. Uh, They haven't performed any functions that look like biological functions. They haven't stored a memory or controlled an arm or what have you. They've done some sort of very simple um, uh, kinds of control where you have like a ball on a plate and you try to keep the ball in the middle or whatever. But of course that doesn't look like a biological behavior of any kind. So they're at the very, very beginnings. Despite like an enormous amount of computational resources expended on their million neurons, they're at the very beginning of trying to get any function out of that. Uh, on the Dendromodus project, you know, they've now simulated half a trillion cells, like you know, ten, five times more than what you find in the brain. But again, it doesn't do anything. It has you know a couple learning rules thrown in and some statistics that govern the connectivity, but you show it an image and nothing happens. Uh, so. You know, the, the approaches which have taken the biology really seriously uh, or more seriously don't solve functional problems. And the people who have taken the function the most seriously haven't told you how a brain could possibly do those kinds of things. And I think there's also, you know, big parts of function that they're missing, which I talked about earlier. And, you know, the way, basically, I think the reason that we got into science, the reason that we published this paper is because we can say, look, you know, we've got biology that looks a lot like what you find in a biological system. It's basically the same kind of neuron model that Moda's group is using. And we've got functions, right? That is, we can do things like recognize letters, we can control an arm, we can make the arm draw something that looks like the letter it sees, we can do reinforcement learning, we can extract syntactic patterns, we can do all these things, and we can compare them right to the behavioral data of people performing those same functions. Um, And so we've really brought together for the first time sophisticated function and fairly detailed biological constraint. And um, so, you know, I don't want to downplay the, the work that's been done in the past, but, you know, I, I don't think it's unfair to say that the biological simulations have been big and used lots of computational resources, but essentially done nothing, as functionally speaking. And on the computational side, <clears throat> lots of resources also, very interesting functions, but highly specialized.
0: Well, let me see if I can bring in a a third point of view and another criticism, actually. Sure. Um, Recently, uh, I had a guest on my show. Uh, His name is uh, uh, Gary Marcus, and he's a professor of psychology at NYU. Mm -hmm. Uh, Recently wrote a well-known article um, in The New Yorker. Yeah, I read his blog. uh, Yeah, talking about Ray Kurzweil's dubious theories of mind. And so Gary's uh, criticism is that most of those approaches that we discussed up until now, they take the sort of a neuroscience approach. And he believes that the most productive um, way is to, of course, use neuroscience, but also use psychology. Because he believes that we have to bridge the mind with the brain, and therefore um, uh, the most fruitful approach would be at the intersection of those two sciences and psychology is almost entirely absent of Ray's book, and that's why Gary was so disappointed, for example.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, when... I I think trying to uh, solve this problem or address this problem is the intersection of far more than two sciences. (laughs) Uh, Psychology and neuroscience is a good start, but you also want computer science, and you want uh, engineering, signal processing. Uh, You want a lot of things, chemistry. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you really want to take into account... Uh, but I absolutely agree, and in fact, Chomsky made a similar kind of argument um, in an interview that he made uh, just before, I think, Marcus's um, article came out, in which he says things like, you know, if you don't have any top-down constraints, then you don't really know where the, what the goal is, or how close you are, or, you know, why you're going there, how to get there. Um, and I think, so he didn't mean it in the way that I would mean it, which is that means that we need to take our neural models and make sure that when we're building functions into them... They're ones that are psychologically plausible and that, you know, we can understand at some level of description that same simulation as having psychological states, having representations, having those representations go into a memory, right? All these kinds of words into a working memory, all those sorts of words are really ones that have have been drawn from psychology. Um, And so I really agree with Marcus that, uh, you know, to build an interesting simulation of a brain, it's one that should be simulating a mind. And to really come up with an interesting theory of how the brain works, it's going to be a theory of how minds work. These things are not different, right? You can't sort of answer one question without worrying at all about the other question. Um, And ultimately, I think this is another way of saying what I was trying to express earlier when I I was talking about bringing function and biological detail together, right? If you want, you can call function psychology and biological detail neuroscience, uh, and that makes me happy.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, let me ask you. what do you think of the concept of the technological singularity?
1: Right, so my understanding of the concept because it is used in different ways by different people Absolutely. is uh, that if we start designing uh, systems, agents, uh, to the point where they get sufficiently sophisticated that they can start designing themselves, then there will be an explosive increase in the complexity such that it will sort of outstrip our understanding and we will be you know, confronted with a a uh, bunch of agents which are much more intelligent than we are than we are. Um, what do I think of that? Um, I find no obvious reason that it couldn't possibly happen. <laughs> it might not be very satisfactory.
0: Do you think that if you are successful and scaled up to the full brain simulation mm-hmm. level in a way that would be the beginning of a technological singularity? So, you know, in a way, way,
1: if uh, you take my goal to be to reproduce a human brain, which actually I'm not sure it is, but uh, if we take that to be the goal, if I succeeded or somebody else succeeds, then all you have is something as intelligent as us. And it's not going to be designing things which are more sophisticated than us, presumably. Um, However, you know, once we've designed, like even in a circuit like this that we've designed that's fairly simple, you know, we could take parts of it out and replace it with something that was sort of more computationally powerful. Um, we could eliminate errors where we see errors show up in human behavior. Now, what the consequences of doing that are we don't exactly know, right? We don't know if it would make it a better designer of a more complex brain or if we would just make it start to fail in weird ways and, and be very, you know, uh, foreign and maybe non-functional. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that have to happen in order for the singularity to occur. Um, I don't know, like, it, it's not obvious to me you know, put on my philosopher hat, there's no in-principle reason that I see that it couldn't happen. But I can imagine lots of ways that it couldn't happen. But I just have no reasons to think any of those are necessarily going to come about. Uh, So, you know, maybe if we make things not function like humans, i.e., we think they're more intelligent than humans, then you pay other costs, which will eliminate the ability to design something more sophisticated. Exactly how that would happen, I have no idea. Maybe that won't happen, and, you know, something like the singularity would be... uh, Likely, but I I have no idea, Mm -hmm. ultimately.
0: Um, Chris, we're getting towards the end of my interview. Uh, So I have a traditional two questions that I always ask all the guests on my show. So the first one is, where can people find more about your work and what you do and sort of keep up to date with the progress of your um, Spawn model?
1: Sure. Um, I actually think the best place to do that is probably going to the Ningo website. So... Spawn is built in a software package called Nengo that we've also written. Uh, so that's uh, nengo.ca for anyone who'd like to go there. And although that website's really dedicated to the software, um, you know, when we have exciting news to report, it'll show up on that Nengo website. Uh, and that site is linked to our actual research page. Um, so if you really want to know more about the details of the research, then the research page is the place to go. But... For this spawn model, uh, we've got a whole slew of videos that we've put up on there. And I'm also using the nengo website as support for my book. So there's information about the book and so on. So I think that's probably the best place to go.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. And of course, I'll, I'll link to it. Great. Uh, but the last question, and perhaps one of the most important ones, is do you have a single message? If people were to take one thing from this interview with you today, what would you like that to be? <laughs> um,
1: That's an excellent question. It depends what the audience is. Who am I talking to? Who do I want to give that message to? So maybe I will give a message to people somewhat in the field. So this would be, you know, something of interest, hopefully, for people interested in artificial intelligence. And the message is that we have not yet learned what the brain has to teach us. So I find that often... Uh, artificial intelligence researchers uh, define a problem and they take, you know, whatever our best methods are right now and they apply it to that problem until the problem is solved. Um, that choice of methods, I think, is often made in a way which does not in any way draw on our best example solution to most of these problems, which is the brain. And I think a lot of uh, progress could be made in uh, more flexible um, and in a lot of ways more efficient and better solutions to some of the problems that people are interested in AI, if they looked at what parts of the brain seem to be involved in solving that problem, how the brain seems to be solving that problem, what kinds of problems the brain is really good at solving, uh, and if you understand those, then you'll know know, when you should or shouldn't go and look at that. But uh, I I find that often understanding things like the architecture of the brain and the kinds of computations and so on is uh, far too rapidly dismissed by people who are sort of um, interested in solving problems of function mm-hmm. in artificial intelligence.
0: Dr. Elias Smith, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you.